Welcome to another edition of the Roar of the Lions UK podcast, sponsored by Buzz and Sounds Recording Studio. My name's Matthew Turner. Thank you so much for joining us for episode number 42, The King is Dead. Long live the King. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Fletcher, Anthony Fitzpatrick, and returning guest, Stephen Collins. How you doing, boys? Glad, thank you. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Good to be back. All good. All good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Super Bowl was interesting. Wasn't it? I don't think anyone was expecting the blowout that we saw. Uh, we'll get on to the Super Bowl later on in the in the broadcast, but broadcast, podcast, what have you. <laughs> uh, but we're going to kick off with some news. We're going to move into the Stafford trade, have a look at what's happening in the coaching and the hiring and the restructuring, and then we'll move on to the Super Bowl. So to start off, two bits of sad news. First of all, just that Chris Wessling has passed away, hero on the Around the NFL podcast. He's died age 46 after his second battle with cancer. Um, you could see it through the build-up to the Super Bowl that several people were paying tribute, including Rich Eisen uh, and, and Colleen Wolfe. Uh, they then ended up doing a podcast after the Super Bowl, which would normally be their breakdown of the game, and they instead dedicated it to him and... Boy, I, I listened to that today and it was a hard listen. You guys had a chance yet to listen to that? I, terrifically sad news. Yeah, just a really poignant tri uh, tribute. Um, but I think the around the NFL team just handled it really classily. Um, you know, it's a, a really emotional, um, I think it's just over an hour. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of it was telling stories and um, reminiscing about... Um, some good moments they had. So um, I'm sure it was kind of cathartic to them, but it was a really good listen. And uh, it, I think it, the measure of how popular he was around the whole NFL network was pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, um, I've been really busy today and I've not had a chance to just sit down and listen. It's not something I just want to have in the background. I think for something like that, I want to be able to sit there and listen. Um, so I think tomorrow, first thing, before I really start getting, cracking on with work, I'm going to, you know, just, just take some time and listen to it properly and, and take in what they've got to say. So, no, I've not listened to it yet, but mm. you know, I'll, I'll listen to it tomorrow. Yeah, it's um, it's one you might need a pack of tissues handy because it's a, it's a proper tearjerker. Um, I actually sent Chris a message when he announced that he was undergoing his second cancer battle. I think it was on Instagram and just said, you know, we're all behind you, mate, and, you know, keep your chin up, you're going to be fine. And he replied to my comment and basically just said thanks, which, you know, he didn't have to do, but that was a mark of the guy. Is I actually looked through the comments for when it was announced and uh, everything on Instagram, and he pretty much replied to everyone, which is just great. And he was known to, you know, have that sort of contact with the fans. So, uh, I mean, for me, the Around the NFL podcast was a transition for me to, from like, hobbyist to someone who actually wanted to take a bit more of an interest in the game and it was kind of my gateway drug from like I'll watch the odd game and not really understand what's going on to these guys know what they're talking about and I'm going to get a lot of wisdom here about the whole thing which I guess is the point of the podcast to start with so for me personally it's a 
bit of a crap one. You feel like when someone does a podcast that you know them much more personally than if it's an actor on TV or, or even if it's a radio broadcaster for some reason, because it's a niche subject you're interested in that you connect with them on a level. So for me personally, it's, it's really crap. And to move on with the pretty rubbish news, uh, Marty Schottenheimer has died as well, age of 77. He was top 10 coach in wins in the NFL and a former Detroit Lions linebacker coach in 78 and 79, famously the Browns and Chiefs head coach during periods of sustained success. And that's, that's also a big loss for not only Detroit, but the entire league, boys. Yep. Yeah. Um, the I don't know a huge amount about Marty Schottenheimer. I think he, he retired and left the league a little bit before I really started getting into it. So what, you know, but I, I know who he is. I know, I know a bit about him. Um, Steve and I both actually made a comment earlier in the day about um, how we recognise his name from the uh, an Eminem track from the Slim Shady LP from years ago. Um, so it's, you know, without trying to get into too much there, you can just tell the the cultural, um, you know, the way he weighed in on the culture in America in the late nineties and how well how well known and how well uh, thought of he was. Uh, the fact that he, you know, his name was getting dropped in loads of different places. The a great question was put forward that you know he got us an unreal record. He won two hundred games, lost about one hundred and thirty, I think it was. Um, and I saw a great debate on whether you know he's one of the only coaches or the only coach with that kind of record, but with a losing record in the playoffs. And did that ever, you know, would his legacy ever be shot down by that? And someone turned around and went, "If you're a fan." Maybe it does, if you like looking at that sort of stuff. But if anyone who coached against him or played against the team he coached, absolutely not. Um, what a coach, what a guy. Um, and the NFL has lost, a, you know, lost an absolute legend of the game. Yeah, I mean, he's the... Uh, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he's... Um, he's like that breed of coaches that kind of like came up in the seventies and eighties, you know, like a completely different style, um, you know, like total badasses compared to the, I guess, more measured and professional um, and polished coaches today. So I think he's a real throwback to kind of like that era. Um, and probably not too many of his type around now. Yeah. I'm just looking through this list and he's the only retired coach with 200 wins or more who isn't in the Hall of Fame, which I just think is very bizarre. I mean, you can't have that number of wins without being an exceptional coach. It just doesn't happen. You're not going to get a job if you don't win enough games. And, you know, maybe his playoff record is lacking, but the playoffs are a series of individual events. The regular season is where greatness happens over a long period of time. And that's I mean, what if you look, the thing for me should always be about. I mean, if you think about it in terms of like context, Matt Patricia would have to coach for about 75 years to get 200 <laughs> wins. He had a career as a head coach for 26 years. You don't have a career for 26 years as a head coach without being a great head coach. If you weren't that good, you might be able to get away with it for a few years, but... You know, by a certain point, nobody wants you anymore because you've not done it. So it, that clearly shows what a great head coach he was. Uh, the fact that he was able to sustain that career. And I think I read 
read through some of his head coaching statistics and he only ever had one one season where he, he had a losing record out of all the seasons he had coached. One. He had a, a few even records, but um, yeah, there was only one as a losing record and that's just insane. That is absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, right. We're moving on. Um, and I mean... More neutral, I was going to say more positive news, but neutral news, I guess, at the moment. Uh, Dan Campbell has said he wants Kenny Golladay and Romeo Aquara back in the building. He's talked to both already, and he will be calling back with the general manager shortly. This was a piece about a week ago. It came out then more recently that Golladay turned down a deal, but it transpired that that was historic. That actually hasn't related to Dan Campbell at all. So... They might be coming back, boys, potentially. How do you feel? Ant? Um, yeah, I'd like to see them both back. I think that goes really without saying. I think the one thing you want, you know, with your players drafting, you want them to come good so that at the end of the contract you can pay them big and they can uh, bring success to your franchise. I think um, both of them have done really well, especially Aquara this year. I know it's been a shame that Kenny's been uh, set back with his injuries, but I mean, overall, I think the way he's developed, the way he's been a team player, how he's never caused any problems for the franchise, I think that they need to do everything they can to eke out a deal with him. It might not be on the money that he was perhaps wanting 12 months ago, because I know he turned down £16 million a year, which he'd probably jump at now, but... They say, hopefully, given what he's done for the franchise, they will really sit down, try and hammer out a deal with him, maybe approve it one over a year, make to see if he can see fit and then get a big payday next year. Uh, but I really want to see him back. And, you know, if, if there's any way to keep him, I do want to see him. And the same with um, Romeo. I think he's had a um, he's had a really good breakout year. I think we've been crying out for an edge rusher for a long time and, you know, it's vital that we keep him. He is now a good developed edge and, you know, to lose him, it'll just be a massive step back, really. We'll have to go back to the draft and find another one. So hopefully, again, if we can find deals that suit the team, given the stage we're at, because obviously we are rebuilding, we can't go massively over the top, but I'd like to see them both back if possible. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's got a bit, my, my stance on Kenny Golladay, I think, has got a bit confusing with a couple of people not maybe not quite getting it. I want him back. I really do. I want him in the building and I want him in Detroit. He knows the city. He loves the city and he wants to be here. You cannot underestimate the power of someone who just simply want, wants to be here and wants to fight and play for the, for the city of Detroit and for the team. I just prefer him to be on a much more team-friendly deal. Um, and I don't rate him. Maybe don't rate him quite as highly as some as many fans do, and as even a couple of you guys do. But I would like to see him back. I'd like to see him. I get back on a team friendly deal with Romeo Aquara. Um, I would like again. I would like to see him get a decent contract, one that does in some way reflect the season that he's had, but also reflects that this is the first season like this he's even come really come close to having. Um, so something that, you know, maybe looks like if he, maybe not the highest base salary, but where he earns good money on incentives um, and on, you know, if he gets a high sack season, he get, it gets a decent amount and whatnot. So I think that there are deals that can be etched out, I think, between both of them that 
can be team friendly, see them get get paid, um, and honestly, someone I think I, I can't go too much off off Romeo Acquire. I've not listened to what he said, but going off some of the interviews that Kenny Galladay said this year, and if he genuinely still wants to be here, um, and knowing that his value for being um, you know for being injured, particularly over the last year, has has decreased. If he genuinely wants to be here, I think he he, he really needs to look at um, really t- maybe taking one for the team a little bit and and seeing a nicer, more friendly deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's when people ask this question, there seems to be a like in brackets at any cost at the end, or in terms of how people react to the way you answer the question. People say, oh, and how much money is that going to be? And it's like, well, obviously everyone has their price. And if they want too much, they're not going to find themselves back. But do you want them here or not is an entirely different one. And for me, I definitely want them both back. I definitely, definitely do. Uh, I think the thing about Aquara that you bring up that is like reflect the poor play that he kind of seemed to show before this year and the good play he showed this year. I'm not sure I buy it. And I know what you're saying, but the most recent season is the best available evidence for what he's going to be like going forward. It's the most recent. And he was a top 10 edge rusher in the league this year. So I think that what I'd like to see is him getting re-signed to near elite money, if that's what he wants, with a team get-out clause after two years. So that if he's not performing to that standard, that we're not shackled to it for the next five. But if he does, that we have him on the hook for the next five at, you know, big money. So the um, over the cap rating for his contract this year was $12.8 million a year. And personally, I'd be okay with that on a long-term deal, as long as there was a team out after a couple of seasons. So, yes, I think if... You mentioned that he's, you know, you go off the one last year, which has been the good year, and it's taken a while to get there. But I think, like you say, you have to go off this last year because I've also seen, you know, a huge clamour to try and sign Corey Davis here, but he's only had one good year. But people seem to want to bring him in and bring him on big money. So you've got to sort of give the same sort of leeway there to Aquara as well, who's been here and is now doing the business. But I think, as an aside, with you mentioned the media bringing up Kenny's contract situation. I think it was very, very naughty of them to bring that up now and word it the way they did because no one stopped and said, hang on, this is from last year. I, I feel like that put him in a bad light. So there were people in our Twitter group, there were people in our Facebook group who were saying, oh my God, he's a money grabbing so-and-so, turning that down. But it turns out that it was from last year. I think that was a bit of a, a swing at him there, almost to put him in a bad light if he was to leave and I didn't think that was very professional from them at all. Um, sorry, I'll, sorry, Stephen wants to just jump in in a sec. I was, um, I was listening to the DLP when Jeffries then made that comment, and I can assure you that he did mention that it was last year. Um, what the rest of the media go on to do then is a different question, but I do know that the when the story broke, um, you know that that relevant information of of that is you know what was put forward 
Sorry, go on, Steve. Media as a whole, not a name. I wasn't blaming individuals there. It was the the media at large, the way they tried to p- portray it. Yeah, I think um, I think from a kind of bigger picture point of view on both these guys, you know, Brad Holmes has come in, and you know, we know that he is, you know, Mister Draft. He he's the guy that um is going to like really go through the the roster, um. And I think it's really important with both Golladay and Aquara that, you know, he's got a bit of a jigsaw puzzle in front of him and he needs to make sure that both of them are pieces that yet can fit into his plan, but also, you know, don't cause problems that the rest of the team have to fit in too much around them. Um, you know, for me, Kenny, I, I know all of us on the podcast rate Golladay slightly differently. I think he's a, a wide receiver, number one. I think he's, contested catch he's got to be in the top five in in the league for contested catches yeah he doesn't get the separation but as a red zone threat the guy's such a safe pair of hands um and i think he is a component that absolutely can be part of our offense going forward but he can't be on a contract that is you know so kind of uh, detrimental to the team that it then causes problems with how the rest of the offense fit together i mean aquara our defense is a talent-free zone, and this guy is one—you know—a young player. Bags the talent. He's starting to produce. That you know, um, as you said, like his rating was like the best so far in his career this season. Uh, he's someone, as far as I can see, we shouldn't be like losing because we won't need to pay him as much. Um, and you know, it sounds like from his attitude, the fact that they drafted his his brother, you know that they wouldn't have done that if this guy had got an attitude problem or wasn't a team player. So for me, that requires maybe a bit more of an easy one to sort out. Um, But I I would definitely like to see them both back. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is coming at the age where, you know, the Bucks have just won the Super Bowl and Mike Evans is coming out and saying, no, we need to keep this team together. And if it takes me taking a pay cut in order to do it, I'll do that. And I know that the guys around this team kind of don't expect us to compete, so they want the money. And that harms our ability to compete, and it's this sort of virtuous cycle where we're not going to compete where the guys don't believe we are going to. And if they actually start believing in this regime, we may find that our contract numbers start to fall, hopefully, as they start to believe. And that's what I'm placing my faith in at the moment. On that note as well, you look at, I mean, yes, you can look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and uh, dare I say it, but you can also look at the Patriots over the last so many years. What Bill Belichick was able to do with so many players was turn around and say, if you want to win, you you come here because here is where you will win and we will win. But if you want to come here, you've got to have to come here on a team-friendly deal. If you want to go get make a load of money, that's fine, but you won't win. You won't go there and win. And at the end of the day, your career, you've come into the NFL. Surely your goal should be to get a ring by the end of your career. And, you know, that doesn't come with being the Patriots way. So far, I think maybe if, if any you know, people start to think as soon as you mention what the Patriots have done, it, it's a Patriot way. But that's anywhere, anywhere that where there are winners. And you look at... I know we're going. I know we'll talk about the Super Bowl later, and the fact that the the Chiefs have not got their second ring in a row, and the, the thought of this dynasty not quite coming up and doing. But 
they obviously the money that they have tied into the likes of Mahomes and some of the others. Yes, it's horrendous. But if they can keep being there, if they can keep getting to Super Bowls, and they can be the place where in a couple of years it's like, well, no matter what, if you are here, you are going to win. You are going to win championships, and it's going to translate into Super Bowls. They might be in some cap hell in a couple of years when the Mahomes deal really starts to hit them and a few others. But they can afford to be a team that says, right, if you want to come here, you want to win, take a team-friendly deal. If you don't want to be here, that's uh, if you don't want to take a team-friendly deal, that's fine. We won't have you because there are plenty of players of your talent or better that would be willing to do so. And they will come here and win. Um, but also, on, 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 I don't want to drop back a little bit here on what you said, Matt, about the Romeo Acquire deal and signing to near elite money, but with a, a, an out. That's absolutely fine. I'd be more than happy with that. Um, I think one of the one of the places I was trying, maybe trying to get with it was um, just it, it, it's something. It, it's team friendly, I guess. At the end of the day, yeah, yes, I would like. I, I mentioned in the fact that maybe reflect that he's only you know this is the first year he's had where he's performed at a high level. Yeah, yeah, there's that, but. I think primarily I want him back. I really want him back and I would be more than happy out of anyone on that team to give him the elite money. Um, but it still, I think to, to a certain extent at this precise moment in time kind of needs to be team friendly and it needs to be. Um, and yeah, what, like Steve's mentioned and it's been mentioned a few times, the fact that his brother's here, um, I think gives us a bit of leverage in, in that negotiation. The fact that we've now got a head coach and a GM who could um, really back, uh, really get the players to back them and really get the players to want to be here. And you look at some of the horrendous deals we've given out in the past to players who were very good or at one point maybe elite, but towards the end of the career, not quite performing and they wanted them in for that locker room um, knowledge and that locker room support. They, we, we were in no position unless we were throwing money at them that was unreal because no one wanted to come to Detroit. And again, I think we could start being in that position where players are going to want to be here and that's going to drop some of those contracts and the prices a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, right. Let's move on. Um, Three Lions, one now the passes, have been named on PFF's 2020 top 101 players from the 2020 season. Taylor Decker's number 72, Stafford number 73, Ragnow number 88. There's a piece from Eric Schlitt on Lineswire about this. And I think it's funny that one of those two still here was on the second team all pro, but it was the one that was slightly lower down on the list and not the one that was slightly higher up, but recognition for a great season for our offensive line in general, boys. Yeah. I mean, Ragnar's just looked a real player from the minute we drafted him. He seemed to settle in really well. Um, and he's just brought such stability to that offensive line. Um, and, you know, he was able to keep Stafford on his feet for large chunks of the season. Um, and he seems like very much a, a Detroit guy as well. So I, I think he's been a, a... I mean, at the time when he was drafted, possibly not the, the draft pick that everyone wanted like you know sometimes a, a center is not the sexiest of, of drafts but you know he's he's certainly um you know really 
played a part and is definitely like a building block for the future. Anyone who can play a full game with a fractured throat and still not give up a sack on his quarterback is a guy who's going to be uh, getting in the top 100 players. He's, he's an absolute stud for us. Him and Decker both are, you know, you know me, I had a lot of reservations about Decker, especially when they paid him last year, but he's just proven everybody wrong this year. And he's, he's up there with the elite left tackles in the league. Now, Ragnow, maybe behind Lindsley, is the best centre in the entire NFL. So, as I said, it's it's a great great starting point for the O-line there. You've got your rookie and Jonah Jackson there as well. You've got Crosby in there. Just need a guard and that line's going to be protecting Goff very well. Did you come? So, um, yeah, it's good to see them getting the recognition they deserve. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I can argue with any of those apart from potentially Jack Fox probably should have been top 10. Um, he's been elite. But no, they they've been absolutely fantastic, and again, we'll we've said it a million times. I've said it a million times, and we'll probably say it a million more over the next few years. Full credit to Hank Fraley and what he's done with that O line this year. There's a reason um, he won the most prestigious award a lion can get in the Roar of the Lions end of season awards, um, and in that he won it and. Those two have just been elite, and the fact that they are young, and the fact that both of them, while both were very, very highly, uh, both spoke very highly of Daryl Bevel, and there potentially could have been some question over where their loyalty would stand with MCDC, they both are going to... They are both tough as nails and both of them will hopefully thrive even more under um, under Matt, Matt Campbell's, so Dan Campbell's total total toughness and, and, and just how tough they are is really going to be utilised. And, you know, that it's just, it's, it's such an exciting prospect that, that they're here, that they're really making moves, really doing doing things uh, positively and hopefully it's just it just speaks so much of more things so much of so many better things to come yeah all right moving on more positive news as well calvin johnson has been elected as a first ballot hall of famer the other members of the 2021 uh hall of fame are alan fanecker Tom Flores, Calvin, uh, Calvin Johnson, John Lynch, Peyton Manning, Bill Nunn, Drew Pearson, and Charles Woodson. That is obviously an elite group of people, but I think perhaps an election which is slightly unexpected given that his rather short career, it was so prolific, but that it might count against him and he might have to wait in line as I saw some larger... NFL media people state that that might be the case, but but terrific news and endorsement for the era that, that Calvin had here. I think it's great that they've they've been able to look past maybe the you know the lack of postseason success. I mean, if you we keep saying like with quarterbacks, it's not about wins. I think it's the same with players in general. You just have to look at him, the way that he's built, his technical skills, just the things he was able to do on a pitch were unreal. And not many receivers can do that. I mean, the amount of times he'd be double team, triple team, he'd still go up. He'd make it look so easy. And like you say, to have such a short career, but still put up the 
stats that he did were absolutely amazing. And I think it's credit to them that they've looked past, as I say, the lack of postseason success there and looked at the player instead. And he's more than worthy of getting into the Hall of Fame. So it's absolutely wonderful that he's got there. And, you know, seeing the news that possibly there's a reunification on the horizon with the franchise as well. I mean, Hopefully that comes to pass because we've been waiting for it for years and that would just be a proper feather in the cap to get him back on the team as well as him being in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was interesting early in the season when there, were, there was the uh, the Chase Claypool bandwagon, which lasted all of about three weeks of how uh, Claypool was going to be the next big thing. But, you know, the, the player they referenced was Megatron, you know. He was the name that um, was constantly brought up in terms of referencing Claypool and his style. And, and that kind of shows you, um, I guess, the relevance that Calvin Johnson's still got around the league. Yeah, he's compared to almost everyone of that build and stature. There was um, the Seahawks wide receiver as well. Metcalf. Metcalf. Metcalf, yeah, who got compared to him too. And while I can maybe see the physical resemblance, it's, it's nothing like him, at least not in the longevity. I saw um, a tweet that had Eric Ebron standing next to Calvin Johnson in their, I think, one season together. And Ebron's 6'4 or 6'5. And Calvin just made him look tiny. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. He's so physically gifted. But, I mean, he put his body on the line and, you know, until he retired, no complaints whatsoever about the organisation came out of his mouth. So... I still love that man, and they need to get on with um, mending things with him, which obviously reportedly is in the works, and, and the Fords are reconciling with him as we speak. One of the big things for me, and yes, I saw throughout the last 12 months, particularly when Calvin Johnson was being spoke about as being a first ballot Hall of Famer, being spoken about as even being nominated. And when the first nominations were up, there were people underneath who were saying, why is Calvin Johnson in there? And it's for me, the question is then, right, well, what's the Hall of Fame there to do? Is it to commemorate talented players? Is it to commemorate players who were successful? Um, our coaches and whatnot. You know, what, what, what's the Hall of... Who is meant to be represented by the Hall of Fame? Because I believe that other than team success, Calvin Johnson encapsulates exactly what that Hall of Fame should be there to do. And people can agree or disagree with me, but I mean, the Hall of Fame should be there for people who were game changers for people who left a serious mark on the game that will be there for a long, long time. There are, you know, when you talk about the likes of Tom Brady, when you talk about the likes of even, say, Patrick Mahomes, um, and they're seeing obvious Hall of Famers, obvious Hall of Famers. Uh, uh, so even at such a, such a, uh, a, a small stage, at such an early stage in their careers, the the question why though, um, and that's because they are they play in a way that marks the game, and they play in a way that changes the game. They play in a way that the children who are watching the game right now, or you look at Calvin Johnson of, a few years ago when he was playing, they are the players that they are turning up every week in school. They are the players that they are that every week in college. 
that are on their on their bedroom walls that they want to be like, that they want to make a catch like, that they want to make a throw like. Calvin Johnson changed the game for wide receivers. And for that reason alone, he forget about longevity of career. Forget about postseason success. Calvin Johnson changed the game. And yes, and a, a huge reason of why he's still being compared to receivers now our receivers are still being compared to him is because he changed the game. He set the standard. He set the tone for what wide receivers should be and should be doing. And I, it, it's not the, if it was all about postseason success, then all you'd ever need is a Super Bowl or a championship ring because they're to commemorate success. The Hall of Fame should be there to, uh, the, the Hall of Fame should be there for the players who changed the game no matter how much or how little success they had. And Calvin Johnson is exactly one of those players. Fully deserved. And just kind of to, to, to wrap up, it, it is great to hear that yet again, Miss, uh, Mrs. Detroit herself, Sheila Fordhamp, is yet again doing incredible things and repairing a relationship that once six, seven months ago, people felt was impossible to repair. And seriously, if in the next couple of, couple of years, if we even make a playoff win, she needs the key to the city of Detroit. She needs bronze statues. She needs a street name. That she needs everything because what she's done, even in seven months so far, the seven eight months so far, has been absolutely fantastic. Um, she's done everything the right way and gone to make sure that that things are working right. They could name a car after her. <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, right. Shall we move on? A um, couple of nice bits of news involving Lions players, although in poor circumstances, but there we go. Quintus Cephas has gone to meet a 10-year-old boy who has terminal cancer. It was his wish in his hospital bed to meet a real-life NFL player. He... Um, also provided him with a signed jersey, some snacks to make sure he's all set up for the Super Bowl. So that's pretty cool. Mark of the man that we have on that roster. And also uh, Jeff Akuda has pledged $1,000 to a five-year-old who was injured in a crash involving the Kansas City Chiefs linebacker coach Britt Reed, uh, who admitted that he had had some alcoholic drinks and was driving under the influence of Adderall just before the... Crash the $100,000 that's been raised so far on the GoFundMe is going towards the mother being off work for a significant period of time to look after the child as well as hospital bills. So a couple of um, bits of news that kind of warms your heart to do with the Lions players being good human beings and people that perhaps we should want to succeed on our team more than most. Well, we talk about culture a lot, trying to have players in there you know good players good hearts you know trying to foster a good positive atmosphere and it's it, you know it's nice to see things like this like you said it's they're not in the greatest of circumstances and obviously you kind of wish the uh, they didn't exist to start with you know for them to have to do this but the fact that they are willing to go out and do bits like this especially kudos you know donating money when he had no reason to given it's an accident that's happened so far away in a completely different state it's it's a great it's a great thing to see and hopefully the young girl is able to uh, make a full recovery thanks to you know people's generosity 
Yeah, yeah, right, let's move on. We have the trade to talk about. So I'm gonna set the scene and then we'll talk about the trade. So before all, it came, all of it came out, uh, there was a piece in the Detroit Free Press by Dave Paquette, and it talked about what Campbell wants in a quarterback. So it was uh, the, the Stafford trade talks heating up, we're getting offers, and people were saying, well, Dan, who, who do you want here? And Campbell went on to say that he wants someone who has good leadership qualities, someone who the guys in the locker room gravitate to. He wants a mobile quarterback with a strong arm, with intangibles being the most important thing. So, I mean, he wants the perfect quarterback, boys. <laughs> no uh, small-time ambitions with that one. Um, he went on to say in the same piece that if they do draft a quarterback, it will be a player that everyone in the organization is sold on. So with the number of advisors in there, I actually think that the likelihood of everyone being sold, I don't know how literally that is meant, but if everyone is not sold on some of the quarterbacks in this draft, especially given the lack of college tape and no combine, I would say that likelihood of us drafting quarterbacks significantly fell with that comment being uttered. I don't know about you, but that was pre-draft. Um, he went on to say about not drafting a young quarterback. He said, if you're not able to draft a, uh, or get a young quarterback, how do you get a quarterback that helps you to continue to grow as a team? That's not somebody you're just spinning your wheels with waiting for something to happen. Very shortly afterwards, the trade came out. So Stafford has dealt to the Rams for a 2021 third and a 2022 and 2023 first. We don't know which the third is this year. The Rams, I actually said in my document, I expect to have four, but I think it's three. Uh, one for this year, two uh, in terms of compensation. Two, yeah, two compensatory picks um, this year as well. So that's one for free agency, one for homes this year, and then one for homes next year as well in their additional picks. So we put out a poll on Twitter and we asked you, the listeners, who do you think won the trade? The options were the Lions did, the Rams did, or both did. And a grand total of 95% of people thought the Lions either won or both won the trade. And I think this is a good point to ask how you guys felt, firstly, how the trade went and whether you think that Goff fits the mould that Dan has set out that I've just mentioned. I think Goff fits maybe not every single last part of that uh, of that mantra, but Goff fits a lot of it, um, or can fit a lot of it. He was fantastic for the first couple of years with the Rams, so we all know he's got talent. Um, we know he's got an arm. We know he's he's maybe not the most mobile quarterback, but he can be mobile. Um, although he's not, you know, like I say he's not well known for that, or, or not not someone you're you're clamouring to as someone you're looking at as oh yeah he's mobile. Um, but I believe that he can be someone who the, the locker room gravitates to. I think Goff seems to me like someone who will either someone who might just kind of flow with the motion of the, the locker room. So if everyone's pumped, he'll be pumped. If the locker room's a bit down, he'll be a bit down. I don't think he's someone who's going to set a tone, but I think he will be well immersed in whatever that, that tone is. So if you've got someone like Dan Campbell, who's setting the tone of everyone being pumped, everyone being 
aggressive, everyone being excitable, then I think someone like Goff will take that in and that is what he will put out. Um, I, 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 so I, I don't exactly think he's going to be sat there setting, the, like I say, setting the tone, but I think he'll be someone who, yeah, who, who kind of spits out what the room, what is already in the room. Um, but as a quarterback, people will be looking to him and seeing what he does. And if he's spitting out the the aggressiveness, the aggression, the positivity, the the excited the, the excitability, then that's what everyone else is going to pick up on and is going to get. I think if you um you, you asked the two questions, obviously does Goff fit here and did we win the trade? I think to do that you have to answer the the second one first. Did did we win the trade? I don't think it's a case of whether anyone has won or lost. I think this is maybe a rare example of a trade where it's benefited both teams equally. I mean, the Rams are a lot closer to being a contender than we are currently, and they've just traded for an elite quarterback in Matthew Stafford, who's immediately going to put them you know, into the frame for making a deep run into the postseason. From so that point of view, you know, they've absolutely got something good out of this trade. But in return, you know, we've got Goff. And we've got two first rounders, you know, for the two drafts after this. We've got a third this year. So for us, this is almost, a, you know, this is kind of a perfect situation for what we have out of this trade. So first up, we've got Goff. Now, as it's already been said, Goff has shown what he can do in this league. And yeah, his form has tumbled a bit over the last couple of years. But for me, you know, I don't see any criticism of that Rams side. Um, about Sean McVay and how he's not managed to adjust their system, you know, when people have figured it out, you know, when they got, when on the year they ran to the um, to the Super Bowl, they played a way that just no team could really counter. But as years have gone on, teams have been, and he's not really adjusted his system. And I think it's incredibly unfair that Goff seems to have taken all the flack for this, where you barely see anything mentioned about McVay whatsoever. So I feel that now Goff's here, He's like Campbell and he's like Holmes. He's got a point to prove. There are a lot of people in the world who doubt the appointment of Campbell and Holmes. And there are a lot of people who doubt Jared Goff. So I think they've brought in a quarterback who, in a way, is in a similar situation to them. He's got plenty of talent. He just needs to prove it. And I think, absolutely, he might be able to. So, And in a long point run from the... Um, from the draft picks we've got, this is this gives us a perfect situation now because we are in a rebuild. But what we have now is an NFL-ready quarterback who, you know, we pay him big for two years. But we've got two years to see whether he can cut the mustard or not with us, whether the dip in form with the Rams was only temporary and he's going to go back to a more prominent position. But if for whatever reason he's not able to work out, it doesn't work out, we have the first round picks the extra ones in the next two drafts. So we now have the draft capability to get really up into the top draft picks and pick, you know, a brilliant talent coming out of college if he doesn't work. So we've almost protected ourselves against the ability, uh, you know, against the prospect of Goff failing with those extra picks as well. And in the meanwhile, we can run with Goff and we can put our big picks now into building the team because we've just seen with Stafford, we've had him an elite quarterback for 12 years, but we never put a team around him. It doesn't matter how good your quarterback is. You need to have the team 
around him. So for me, you drop all thoughts of drafting a QB this time. I don't think there's anyone good enough outside the top two. And I'm not trading away capital to go and get Wilson or Lawrence. And I start building up that defense. I get my new receivers in. I start putting the building blocks in place for a team to put around either Goff or the QB who's going to come in in a year or two's time if Goff doesn't work out. So for me, I like the trade. I think it's really smart business. We've seen some of the other trades that have been offered. You know, players not as good, not enough, not as many draft picks. We've got really good value. The Rams have benefited. We've benefited, you know, and we've given our rebuild the best possible chance of succeeding. So I think from Holmes's point of view, it's, a, it's an A-plus for his first real big bit of business here. Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, let's let's rewind a bit through Goff's career. I mean, I I wrote um, quite a long article on the kind of trade for NFL Scotland, and I think one of the first you know points I kind of made was Jared Goff is not Matt Stafford. He's never going to be Matt Stafford, um, and if that's our expectations are Stafford high, you know we're going to be disappointed. But let's let's look back. The quarterback is probably the most assessed position in the NFL. Um, you know, quarterbacks are analysed to the nth degree. Jared Goff is the number one pick in the 2016 draft. You know, he has been picked before any other player. Um, and that means that there is something about this guy that, you know, there's something about him that made the Rams trade up for him and, and take that pick. You know, this is a guy, he's played at um, University of California. He's broke, I think he's got 20 QB records at University of California. This is the same university that Aaron Rodgers played at. So again, you know, earlier in his career, um, there's obviously something in the guy that he's got a, a set of capabilities and skills that you know he's definitely got the ability to shine. He he then goes to the Rams. He's the number one pick. A whole ton of pressure on him, and he has a pretty dire rookie season. But then 2017, 2018, if you look at his numbers, you know, these are pretty good by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, passer rating over 100 in both 2017, 2018, um, averaging 8.4 yards in 2018, um, you know, 32 TDs to 12 interceptions in 2018, 28 to 7. In 20, I mean, this is not Jameis Winston we're getting. This is a guy who has got an arm and has got a brain. Um, at some point, something's gone wrong. You know, at some point, the relationship between him and McVeigh has gone south. And, you know, we've, we've seen, we know from soccer players how a new manager coming in will have a look at someone and, you know, maybe they, obviously he wasn't McVeigh's pick. Um, McVeigh came in in his second season. Obviously, McVeigh has, you know, decided for whatever reason that it's not going to work out between them, and and things have kind of um, progressively gone downhill from there. Um, but I, I think, as as someone um, said, you know, the Rams have not invested really much draft capital in the offense. It's all been focused around building an elite defense, which you know has got them to a Super Bowl. Um, so you know, Goff probably hasn't had the same amount of weapons that you know, say Brady's got in Tampa Bay or, you know, um, the Rams haven't invested that heavily in their offense. So I think there's something, you know, really, really um, exciting in terms of if we can revitalize Goff, it could 
absolutely be a steal. Um, if you look at some of the other quarterbacks that we could have traded for, you know, we're never going to get Deshaun Watson, but do you want Carson Vance? Do you want Sam Darnold? I think Goff's a much better bet, probably you know, the best of that bunch that we were potentially in the kind of market for. And by taking Goff and his contract away from the Rams, you know, that's helped oil the wheels of the Stafford deal. Um, and I think Ant made a really good point. Even better, it means we don't have to draft a QB this year and we can spend our draft capital on the defence. So I think there's a whole load of wins here. I mean, I, I could be absolutely um, eating my words in... 12 months' time if it turns out that we've actually got Jameis Winston the second. But I think this guy is, is, is going to be decent, more than decent. Um, and if Dan Campbell can um, can light a fire in him, um, you know, I, I think we history will say in 12 months' time, yeah, we absolutely won this trade. But also it's given us exactly what we want going into the draft and exactly what Campbell and Holmes want in terms of a rebuild. So... I'm pretty, I'm pretty comfortable with it. At the same time, gutted that Stafford's gone, but you know, the guy was probably going this season or next season anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think we absolutely maximised his value with only two years left on his contract. His his value naturally declines as we get a year further on into that deal, and that's a, a year less control we have over his contract. The, the leverage falls, the compensation falls, and at the end of the day. We have capitalised on a time where we're not contending for our most valuable asset in order to further our future. So I definitely think that whether we won or didn't win the trade as much as that has been the debate is, does this benefit us in the long term more than keeping Stafford does now? And I think the answer there is clearly yes. Uh, Just quickly, uh, the Lions' initial offer to the Rams was a straight trade Stafford for Aaron Donald, which was declined politely as far as I gather um, on on Goff he had a few comments to various people uh, Michael Silver from NFL Network has a quote from Goff which says I'm moving forward and I couldn't be more excited to build a winner there I'm excited about Dan and the whole staff he then went on to talk to Sam Farmer of the LA Times, which was quoted in NFL.com. And he said, you, want, uh, you don't want to be in the wrong place. It became increasingly clear that this is the case. The trade is something that I'm hopeful is going to be so good for my career. Talking to the Lions is what made me go, oh my God, this is how it's supposed to feel. This makes me feel great, how excited they were, how fired up they were talking about the, the Lions front office stuff. So Goff is clearly excited and I'm I I know there's a certain part of him which kind of needs to say those things but you could probably get away with I'm excited to be here and that will probably do as a sound bite but that he went into fairly big depth about being excited and talking to Dan and you know this is a feeling he didn't feel in LA which he doesn't need to say because that almost is like shots fired back at LA slightly and at uh, the coaching staff and team and how he felt while he was there, maybe even while the team was doing well. Um, and I'm with Ant actually about saying, you know, perhaps that McVeigh gave up on him. And some time ago, if you have a look at, at what Steve was saying in terms of when, when Goff was doing well, it coincides with Brandon Cook's being there 
which is a type of receiver that the Rams just don't have. And if you have a look at their receiving core, you might think, wow, that's an amazing receiving core. But there's no burners there. They're all excellent route runners who are, you know, intermediate distance catches. There's no one who's blowing the top off the offense there. And I think it really constrained Goff and that McVeigh was content to constrain his scheme to suit Goff in the two years where he was doing well and then wanted to do it the McVeigh way, which didn't suit Goff. And now suddenly Goff's not so great, even though they managed to get to the divisional round this year. Uh, and and Goff showed amazing um, toughness to, you know, come off thumb surgery, to come back. And, I mean, let's face it, he was not the problem against Green Bay. As much as we've always said that Matthew Stafford has never been the problem with the Lions, but Jared Goff has been the problem sometimes this year for, for LA. He has not played well in part. But in the biggest game of the season that they had, he played very, very well. And actually, in comes a player who has more playoff experience than anyone on the Lions, who in the playoff games he's had, has performed to a high level consistently. And I'm, I'm delighted he's here. Uh, just a, a little bit to finish off the trade talk. Jeff Risden on Lions Wire uh, explores what happens now with a number seven pick. Um, and it's an interesting one because he says, okay, so Goff's here, so it's less likely you take a quarterback. And the O-line sorted four-fifths of it anyway. So maybe O-line isn't so obvious. And yet taking those away, you're left with there being no real defensive players going in the top 10 if you take into consideration Micah Parsons off-field issues perhaps the only one going top 10 apart from cornerbacks and we addressed that last year with Akuda perhaps so that really leaves a trade back or wide receiver as the most likely options at seven um, I know I've just said a lot there boys but um, Goff he's excited to be here and the number seven pick has completely changed now how are you guys feeling on that? Um I think you look at this. The reason I say that Goff seems like a player who's not going to set the tone is kind of the fact that things started to go south in LA. So he started to regress in LA and he never, I, I didn't see him take charge of that situation. No, you can't. I know I'm not expecting him to turn around and start, you know, headbutting and going head toe-to-toe with Sean McVeigh in, in situations. But as a leader and as as an elite level, or as someone who wants to be an elite level athlete, at the quarterback position in the, in the NFL, as a quarterback who's played in the Super Bowl, you need to command that situation. You need to. At least, even if it doesn't quite work out, even if the maybe in, in certain states, the team doesn't quite, still doesn't quite improve. If you can at least put your mark on it and say, at least you gave it all, at least you went out. And if you do end up going out in a ball of flames, you went out your way. Um, and I, I just think that he let the situation get him a little bit. He let the situation affect his play. And that's something that, again, I want to see what, Dan Campbell, um, I, I want to see what Dan Campbell does with that. I want to see what Anthony Lynn does with that. I think you look at the fact that, like, like, like it's been said, that 
you, you give Goff two years playing one way, playing a way that suits him. You get players like Todd Gurley who end up going and you lose a couple of maybe key offensive players. And then you then you, you give him big money because he's proved he can play in this system. So you give him the big money and then completely change the system and then wonder why he's not showing that he's value for that big money. It's a bit of a strange one. And I do agree the fact that Sean McVay needs to take a little bit of a look at himself for it. And I think you again. You look at the fact that he may, he he is tough. He's a very tough quarter. He is a tough quarter. But yes, he played for a week after surgery. He's not probably going to be as tough as Matthew Stafford was. Um, but I think as well when you look at the draft, and and I'm going to kind of this is my little segue into into the actual draft talk is you look at the fact that the thing with Golladay is he's not a Jared Goff receiver. He's a Matthew Stafford receiver. And again, with Steve saying, Jared, uh, Jared Goff is not Matthew Stafford. Jared Goff is not going to be placing the ball in where Galladay is. The tight windows, the contested catches, Goff is not going to be making those pin, uh, like absolute perfect throws into where Galladay's hands are going to be. We're going to have to start looking at Pacey receivers, receivers who can get that bit of separation um, in the ways that sometimes, you know, they were the ones that Matthew Stafford was slightly overthrowing. He was the one that was maybe slightly not quite expecting where they were going to be. I think Jared Goff's going to be a bit better in those situations, but nowhere near as good in, in the situations where they're contested. Um, so I, I think Jared I, Goff's got an arm, though. I, I definitely... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think he's definitely got a. He, he might not have Stafford's arm, but he, he's still. He's not got Drew Brees' arm. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not turning around saying at all that Jared Goff's not got an arm, or even even one that that uh, on its day could potentially rival Stafford's. But I just think he's got he's got a, a good cannon in him. But I'm just thinking the the, the pinpoint right in between two defenders. When when the margins are so small and you need to get it within millimeters, otherwise it's it's an interception or it's it's not being made. Then you look at some of the no look. You look at the no look pass that Stafford made earlier on in the season. How just perfect it was. And I don't quite see Goff maybe into that doing those things. I see Goff being a more serviceable and just efficient with it. Um, but also, I think this is because this is where I say like. If Golladay's not going to be or not going to end up being a Goff quarterback, a Goff wide receiver, that means, again, more emphasis comes in on the wide receiver because we've lost Marvin Jones. Amandola's probably not coming back. The only person left is going to be... and We've even lost bloody Robert Prince. The only person left is going to be Quintez Cephas and maybe Mo Sanu. That, that, that That's all we'll have left. So there's going to be so much more emphasis on wide receiver, potentially in the draft, that that could see us keeping number seven and going for a wide receiver. Because I truly think that if we stay in the top 10, we go receiver. If we go out of the top 10 and trade back, we go defensive. And I think that, like I say, the, the, the Golladay situation and looking at whether Golladay is going to be a genuine goff receiver, is that, that was going to change a hell of a lot going forward, but we're in a far better position to deal with that situation than we were two weeks ago. Um, 
Yeah, um, you've raised a few points there, of course. To segue back into your first bit about Jared Goff and maybe him not, like you say, taking the reins up there, showing a desire to take the bull by the scruff of the horns and, you know, get the offense going again. And it's not an excuse. I think you have to look again at McVeigh for that. Everything you hear about Sean McVeigh says that he is an absolute obsessive when it comes to his offense, he's the offensive guru. What he says goes. And I feel like his players get very little, you know, free will there when it comes to being able to stamp their own personal marks. I mean, you look at that Rams offense. Can you tell me one player on that Rams offense that really, truly sticks out to you as a leader, a guy who takes that offense on the field and gets it going forward? Cooper Cup doesn't do that. You know, Everett doesn't. You know, the running backs don't. I don't see a single player there who exudes those leadership qualities. And I think that's because of... um, McVeigh and the way he runs that, I think it's his way or no way. And I feel like when now Goff's here, we might see him relax. We might see a little bit more trust put in him, him be allowed to play a bit more of a, you know, a free flowing game. So I wouldn't count out his leadership just yet, because obviously he's at a point in his career now where he has to excel. So you may very well see it come to the fore. But that's just my views on that one. Anyhow, I I feel like he has been hard done to and we are going to see a bit more of a different Jared Goff here. In regards to the draft, I think this trade with Stafford again, the point I didn't make earlier, this because obviously we've got the two drafts coming up now with the two firsts, which are going to be really good for us, gives us good position. But now we don't need a quarterback. We, you know, we can mortgage seven for extra draft capital if the situation arises. Now I know it's been said, is there really many defensive prospects we want to go for at seven? Because defense is where we really need to go. Um, I'd like to see us trade back one or two. I mean, we've got a couple of quarterback needy teams behind us, Carolina, Denver, players who might be willing to come up. But I do genuinely think if we stay in the top 10, eight, nine, even at seven, that Quitty Pie is worth a go. The Michigan edge rusher, I think we've been we've been crying for a good edge rusher for years. You pair him with Aquara and Flowers and I all of a sudden think that, you know, we've got a really potent edge rushing unit, which is going to hit the quarterback a lot. So I think guys like him need to be considered and we don't want to be drafting ourselves. We don't want to be trading too far back that we miss out on the ability of these guys. So I would like to see us, you know, actively shop it. Hope in front of us, a few quarterbacks are left. If the likes of Lance and, you know, fields are left with us still on the clock, I think we can get a hell of a haul from some of these teams behind us. We'll be desperate to get in front of Carolina, get in front of Denver to get the rest of the QBs on the table. So um, my ideal thing now to do with seven would just be to drop back a little bit, take Pi or Russo, you know, improve your edge rush a lot, get a few more draft picks for later on. So I hope we do that in regards to uh, in regards to the draft now. I think just going back to, to Goff and Stafford, there's there's one thing that concerns me. Um, if you look at Stafford's interception rate and, and Goff's, you know, Goff throws slightly more interceptions than Stafford. If you look at fumbles, Stafford's fumbled the ball 13 times in the last three years. Goff's fumbled 29 times. The last thing that our defence needs is turnovers um, you know, we, we need to keep the offense on the field. So um, Goff needs to sort that out. Mom. So uh, MCDC needs to be, you know, 
whatever whatever he, he needs to do in the in those drills. But there needs to be some kneecap biting for any fumbling. He's just he's just yeah. stood there with like a litter pitter type thing, just like cracking his knee every time he fumbles it or something. Just like stop it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Rolling pin on his hands. Catch him out a bit. He's got small hands. That's what I keep hearing. It's it's the small hands. But yeah, ball safety is so important. But I will add this though: he's not had the O line that he's going to have now. Uh, especially yeah. over the last couple of years, he's not had that O line. He's gonna get that little bit more time. He's gonna get a little bit more freedom in the pocket, and hopefully that again is something that we see that that, that sees him really again. If we're not talking about okay, that we'll see him be able to command the situation um, and command it, command the pocket so much better. Um, knowing you've got Ragnall, Decker, Crosby, um, and the likes of that in front of him. That's another thing. They were missing Andrew Whitworth for a big portion of last year. Their standout left tackle, weren't they? So that's obviously not helped him missing such a big player on our team. If you, you lose that on any O-line, like the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, which we'll talk about later, you lose your standout tackles. Quarterbacks makes their life so much harder. Yeah, I think Stephen's touched on probably my biggest problem with Goff, and it's not, it's not the fumbles in general. I think that Goff hasn't developed the the sixth sense that some quarterbacks have for feeling pressure in the pocket, especially when it's coming from the blind side, he doesn't feel the pressure and his fumbling generally isn't him just losing the ball. It's it being knocked out of his hands by a tackler who's beaten the left tackle on the edge and is coming around to hit him on his blind side. So it's a skill he's going to have to develop and he's going to have to do it quickly. Otherwise that's going to become a big issue. Right, I think we've spent enough time on that. So I'm going to move on to the coaching and executive hires and restructuring of the organisation. Just a bit of news to bring everyone up to date, maybe a quick discussion on this, but Super Bowl to come afterwards. So very quickly, and some of this is out of date um, by a week or so, but it all remains relevant still. Robert Prince has left the organization, the long-standing wide receivers coach. He has joined the Houston Texans because he wants to jump ship from one burning ship to a, a burnt ship. Um, but good luck to him. Probably the most well-liked coach here and overseen some really, really good wide receivers in his time. Uh, transformed Galladay into a top 10, top 15 wide receiver. Golden Tate, Marvin Jones. He's done terrific work here. So good luck to him. And in the last hour, the Lions have, well, per Pelissero, they're expected to announce that Antoine Randall L will be replacing him as the wide receivers coach. He was an, uh, sorry, uh, yes, uh, he was an offensive assistant for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who have just won the Super Bowl. And we could not announce this until that had all calmed down. And of course, you've got to give him a couple of days to celebrate. There's not many people with a ring in this building. So well done to him and welcome to Detroit, Antoine Randall L. Uh, the Lions tight ends coach Ben Johnson has turned down Jacksonville to remain with Detroit and he reunites with Dan Campbell, who he worked with in Miami when Dan was the interim head coach in 2015. The Lions have also hired Brian Duca. He is a former Ravens D assistant and he now joins as the defensive assistant here. They also hired Todd Wash. He's a former Jags defensive coordinator for the last five years. He's going to be a defensive line coach. Kelvin Shepard, the former 2018 Lions player and 2020 LSU director of player development. He's a defensive assistant. And Seth Ryan, the 2020 LA uh, Chargers quality control coach. 
He is a wide receiver assistant. That's all per Pride of Detroit and Twitter. Uh, Mike Disner has a new title. He is now the VP of Football and Business Administration, reflecting the additional roles he's taken on in the organization, which is a terrific move in my book. No longer listed on the staff now and presumably have now left R. The William Clay Ford Minority Coaching Assistantship coaches Leon Washington and Ty Warren, Steve Gregory, the DB coach, Tony Carter, a defensive assistant, Billy Yates, an offensive line assistant, and Ty McKenzie, a linebacker's coach. Um, there's a lot of information there, boys, but I throw it open to discuss any of those if anything stands out to you. The big one there, I think it's it's the change at wide receiver coach. I think we're all gutted to see Robert Prince go. I mean, he's been a well-respected man in that building for a very long time now, and you know, you just have to look at the receivers he's had under him, how they've developed. We've always had good receivers here in Detroit. You know, there's Kenny there, Marvin Jones, he resurrected his career. And it's really a shame that we've not been able to keep him on because the one thing I've really liked about the hires as a whole, they've not just cleaned house and sacked everybody off. The coaches they have kept from the previous regime have been coaches who have done really good jobs. So you look at Hank Fraley, Aaron was saying earlier, the, the job he's done with the O-line has been nothing short of incredible. We've not had a good one for a long time and he's come straight in and he's absolutely put his marker down there and we have an extremely good O-line. You know, there was worries that he might go out to the Steelers, but he's like, he's invested here, which is great. Ben Johnson, the tight end coach. Again, you look at what's happened with TJ over a 12-month period. He's gone from a guy who people were already saying might be a bust to the Pro Bowl. You know, just the effect he's had on him has been brilliant. So I like the guys they've kept as well as the guys they've brought in as well. Overall, but I think as much as I'm disappointed that Prince has gone, I think Randall L., I think he's about as good a replacement as you're going to get. He's like you said, he's just won a ring. You know, it's time for him now to take on a proper receiver you know, coaching position. And I think he'll be brilliant for us. So, you know, it's, it's slightly evaporated that disappointment, but on the whole, I just think the coaching hires have been really good. People may point to concerns about a lot of them being, you know, NFL players, not much experience, but I think when you put enough of those guys in the room together, there's a common goal for them to do well. And I think they're all driven. They're all, you know, there's a lot of potential, a lot of talent in there, which is ready to come through. And they've put in a good amount of experience as well to help them in the right spots. So you look at you look at the staffing coaches now overall, and I think there's the right amount of experience and youth. And I think you know, this franchise is going to be a lot different in 12 months in terms of the direction it's gone, but definitely in a good way. I know you guys have um, covered it before, um, but I think, you know, Aaron Glenn joining as um, DC, um, what, you know, what he can do to reinvigorate our defence um, and also his previous relationship. exciting things to look forward to in the next 12 months any thoughts Aaron yeah um, of course it's sad to see Robert Prince go um, he was a he was, he was a Hall of Famer um, before Calvin Johnson was which is you know just brilliant it is brilliant but 
No, he, he's obviously, he, he's someone who's he's been in the organisation for so long and just clearly had such a great impact. He was someone that the players completely rallied behind to keep when Patricia came through the door after Caldwell and someone I imagine had, you know, I, I imagine there were, there were some people there similar to the way they were with... Um, Yeah, with, with, with a couple of mem- a couple of the other members of the previous regime, um, players wanting them to stay, wanting to be around them, um, but I'm a bit surprised as to I w- I I don't hundred percent think that it was Dan Campbell or Brad Holmes saying, "Look, we don't want you anymore." I think it part part of the decision was on him. It came for me a little bit too late for it to be. Look, goodbye. Thank, thank you for your time here, but you're now surplus to requirements. We want someone else. I think it took a little bit too long for that one to come through, which makes me think Robert Prince, you know, he's given them a shot and then sat back and thought, maybe no, this isn't quite for me. Or maybe waited for all the offers for him to be on the table so we can make that decision. But it baffles me why he's gone to the Texans. Absolutely baffles me. Um he could have had a ring in a couple of years, but no. <laughs> oh well. Um, yeah. So, oh, sorry. Did you? Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to just add the fact that you know it's great that Ben Johnson stayed. Um, like as we mentioned with T.J. Hawkinson, what a great guy he's been, um, and what a great talent to keep here. Um, Todd Walsh taking a step back from being a DC to come here is great. Uh, in addition to the other ones, you know, that are former players. But, you know, at least we've added someone with experience there. And then finally, I just wanted to make a comment here on Mike Disner and just say, it makes sense. I don't think it's, I don't think the title means anything. We knew what his job was a few weeks ago, but it's just, he's got a new title to go with it. Sorry, but he's, he's earned that. He's, you know, I'd be, I'm happy for him to, be taking on those roles alongside Brad Holmes and allowing Brad Holmes to do what he does best. Yeah, so just picking out one, the biggest thing for me there is Todd Wash. And I I note what you say about Antoine Randall-L and in terms of effect on the organisation, maybe he will have a bigger impact. That remains to be seen. But Todd Wash is a defensive coordinator for the last five years who stood down to become a defensive line coach here. And that may not seem like a massive thing. And you may think, ah, the Jags, well, they're a trash organization. So, you know, what's this guy on about? But let me just take you through the defensive rankings in terms of yards for that defense during the time that he was a defensive coordinator. Let's bear in mind that he is not the guy in charge of personnel, which has been the Jags issue in the past couple of years. In terms of yards, in 2016, they ranked sixth, then second in 2017 then 5th in 2018, and then 24th in 2019 and 31st in this year. So progressively worse after a really good start. But if you have a look at that Jacksonville defense when he first started, they were outstanding. It was a young defensive team, generally speaking, apart from Calais Campbell, who obviously is still balling out now. But he had talent, a mix of, of veterans and young players, gelled them into a defense that was absolutely feared. And you know what? That team should have gone to the Super Bowl. They should have beaten the Patriots in that conference championship game. And their problems 
on defense really came when the whole team was effectively traded away out from underneath him. That wasn't his fault. If you give him good players, he's going to perform as a coach. And he doesn't have to focus on the entire defense now, but on the defensive line, which has shown some improvement this year, at least in the pass rushing stakes with Aquara, but also for some games, this run defense actually looked like it had something to it, and then it fell away again afterwards. But you know what? I think there's some pieces here that he can do something with, and it speaks volumes that someone is going to take a step down from a previous position to come here. It's a mark of what we're doing. So I think symbolically, as much as anything, someone willing to take a step down to come here is absolutely massive. Yeah, and I think, I think that's where I mentioned there about sort of getting the right balance of experience and potential because Aaron Glenn's obviously come in. He's a first-time defensive coordinator. A lot of potential there. A lot of teams wanted him. But what they've done is they've surrounded him with a good amount of experience. Now, obviously, he requested Dom Capers to come in to give him a hand who he's well-known with. They've brought in Dom Capers to help give him, you know, there's an older figurehead in there to give him some advice to mesh with Glenn's new ideas. And like you say now, we've got a highly experienced coordinator training down at the defensive line. So you've got guys who know what they're doing just to help Glenn as he's starting out in his role as a coordinator for the first time. And I think that's, that's good to see. They've not just gone, right, we're just going to give a first-time guy and we're going to just throw him in there, not give him any help. They've put plenty of people around him who can help him whilst allowing him also to, you know, become the guy he wants to be as a coordinator. So I think the hires have been really clever from that point. I say just the right balance there. So yeah, it's the defense I think is going to look good in a few years with these guys here. I think another thing that's been mentioned as well is just what this team is being built to do. The the whole point of a lot of these coaching hires is that yes, a lot of them are First timers at the position, yes, there's a lot of them that are, you know, the the very very inexperienced in terms of the position itself. But the young, they all have experience in other ways that obviously relate to that position. And the whole reason that we're getting people in like that is so that you know what we're, we're going to be an organization, an organization that grows coaches there's going to be some sort of coaching tree that comes through Detroit and that is a great that's obviously a fantastic thing uh, in itself for the fact that you know we're going to get to watch coaches come through Detroit and then hopefully go somewhere else and, and do well you know some of them are going to come with compensatory picks which you know, not not to be cynical, but you know that's that's not a bad thing that some of these coaches are going to get us compensatory picks in the future. But also the fact that if someone does leave, say it's a linebackers coach or say it's a defensive assistant, there's one there that's ready and waiting, already in the organization, already ready to be promoted because the. the that level of bringing people up, the person below is always going to be in a state of learning, in a state of being built up and ready to take that next step. And I think, again, like, like, like I said, though, that, that's just, it says a lot about where the organization wants to be in terms of supporting individuals. I think that says a lot about why coaches are coming here 
and why coaches want to be here because they see not just the opportunity to be part of something that could hopefully potentially be special, but also something that could benefit their careers as coaches, not just as people within the sport. Yeah, uh, the conveyor belt of talent. Yeah, building it, building it, building it. Right, any more comments before we move on to Super Bowl? All right, let's do it. So it was the Kansas City Chiefs in Tampa facing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's the first time that two quarterbacks who've won a Super Bowl and our former Super Bowl MVPs have faced each other in the Super Bowl. It was also the first time that a team has played the Super Bowl in their own stadium. And as we now know, the first team ever to win a Super Bowl in their own stadium. The Chiefs started three and a half point favourites, but we now know that Tampa Bay won by 22 31 to 9. Um, and it started badly for Kansas and, and it didn't get better, really. Um, just as a kind of brief little point where I might pick out the most important stretch of the game. And for me, it was in the first quarter. Um, and it was Tampa Bay going for it on the half yard line on fourth down. And Kansas City making a huge stop. Running play, maybe broke the play, maybe didn't. Didn't have the camera angle, not called on the field, turnover on downs. And then Kansas City go four plays for eight yards, shanking the punt and allowing a 38-yard touchdown drive to follow. So they had to put up with a nine-play, 69-yard drive just before made the big stop, which could turn the momentum and gave it straight back to Tampa. And if you give Tom Brady half a chance, he's going to take it. The old adage of you never bet against Tom Brady came true, boys. Yeah, it was, I think we were all expecting quite a close one, weren't we? I don't think, certainly we weren't expecting a blowout. I mean, I think, I think, sorry. Sorry, what's that? What, what, what did I say before it, though? I was just about to say there. I said you were the one who were... Uh, so, yeah, Matt, for the record, was the one who said he thought he saw a blowout coming. But in terms of the game, I would like to say that I think on the last pod, I did pick out the area where it was won and lost, which was the battle between that Chiefs O-line and the Tampa Bay front seven. You know, they were missing Eric Fisher. I think there was no right tackle there. You wondered if they were really able to get in at Mahomes you know, flush him out the pocket, bearing in mind he's not at his most agile, having turf toe, they're going to cause him problems. And the big stat that jumped out from that game there was that Mahomes in scrimmage had to run 497 yards before passing or trying to get the ball away. That's how much they chased him all over the field. That's, that's five lengths of the pitch. They chased him all over. They did not give him time to set himself, put his foot into throws. He just had an absolutely awful day. He got sacked so many times. I mean, that double team when Sue hit him, I mean, that just looked absolutely nasty. I mean, you've never seen Patrick Mahomes have such little time to throw the ball. And even when he was getting hit, I mean, God, some of the throws he was pulling out were amazing. But, you know, they were just a yard too far because he didn't have time to set himself. And that front seven just dominated they gave him no chance to throw for touchdowns and you know for the first time since the lions did it you know over a season ago which cbs forgot about conveniently he didn't throw a single touchdown and he never really looked likely to i mean that book's defense was just absolutely amazing and just 
suffocated them all game. So, you know, you've got to say fair play to them. You know, the secondary sat back. I mean, we mentioned so many times just the coverage was amazing. The amount of times he was looking for people to throw to, they just weren't there. They were getting covered. I mean, we don't see that really here in Detroit that often, do we? It made us made us all feel really jealous, but it, they came in with a game plan. The defence just ruined the Chiefs. So, you know, it's nice to see the Buccaneers win one anyhow. I mean, you look at the, the template they've used, you know, maybe something to follow there, build up your defence, getting, getting some good offensive players. They don't necessarily need to be the youngest in the world. It's just as long as they fit your system and off you go to a Super Bowl. Yeah, I will point out, by the way, that I didn't just say that I saw a blowout, but that I saw a blowout in Tampa Bay's favour. But we'll, we'll move on from that. Steve, how did you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you know, for for the UK public watching at home, you know, the staying up is uh, always, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a grind, isn't it? Trying to get through till four o'clock. But, I mean, really, by the time of the halftime show, the game was over, you know, effectively. Um I think the thing that stuck out for me was Todd Bowles and how he, he kind of called the game um, for the for the Bucks. I mean, Bowles is renowned as a guy who loves to blitz. He actually only blitzed 9.6% of defensive plays because he basically neutralised the speed of um, Tyreek Hill and Miko Hardman by just dropping back with two deep safeties. Um, I think he had a two-safety deep um, scheme and 87% of plays for the Bucks, and what that basically did was that that just cut off Mahomes' supply line and it made him run because as, as Ant pointed out you know with two defensive tackles out I think there were three players altogether in the Kansas City O-line that were playing out of position to kind of accommodate um, you know the kind of substitutions I mean Shaq Barrett Pierre Paul Sue I mean, they absolutely collapsed the pocket. Um, Devin White and Levante David, you know, had got their speed to take Kelsey out of the game in the middle. They absolutely smothered Kelsey. Um, Winfield Jr., I mean, you know, that was possibly one of the players of the game for the Bucks. Uh, when you think about how Tyreek Hill went off against him in week 12, I think, he, you know, nearly 300 yards, Um in, in their matchup. And, you know, Winfield had an excellent game, two passes defended. He got his interception and obviously he got his penalty for the Taunting Hill, which um, he looked thoroughly pleased to, to do. So I, I think from the, the, the Buccaneers point of view, Todd Bowles just played an absolute blinder. Um, you know, Brady was Brady. He, he, he game managed, he made his pinpoint throws he didn't overstretch himself. Um, he read the game really well. He, he could see everything coming. Um, and he was just really, really efficient. Um, he was clearly knocked by the fact that, you know, he'd had a bad game in the championship game. He'd thrown those three second half picks. And, you know, he didn't make the same mistake again. He was absolutely ruthlessly precise in terms of all of his um, throwing. So I, I think those two factors really um, combined big time. Um, and and yeah, I th yeah, I think Brady's now won a Super Bowl in three separate decades, which is just a phenomenal feat. Um, and you know, you 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 can't knock him. The influence he's had on that franchise—it's really interesting that 
when you look at the kind of crew he assembled, you know, when he went to Tampa Bay, he asked for Gronk, you know, he, he got Gronk out of the WWE, you know, Gronk was hitting himself in the head with a metal chair 12 months ago in the WWE. And, you know, he's, he's tempted Gronk out of retirement. Leonard Fournette, the Jacksonville Jaguars, who, you know, finished one and 15 this season, they didn't want Fournette that they couldn't even find anyone to trade with him for. So, you know, the, um, the books picked him up on the waiver wire. Um, and obviously Antonio Brown was kind of in the wilderness as well. If you look at those three guys that Brady asked to come in with him, all three of those guys scored a touchdown, two for Gronk, one for Fournette. I thought Fournette was lucky not to get MVP with his performance because it was just absolutely fantastic. But it says something about Brady and his eye for a player that those three guys in particular who he kind of took under his wing and, and got to Tampa Bay were the guys that produced. I mean, Evans and Godwin had quite quiet games. Ronald Jones was in the game for a bit when he needed to be. But um, yeah, I, I wonder whether Brady's not going to be uh, coaching at some point if he can get that performance out of um, a kind of gang of, I guess what you call them misfits. But um yeah, what what a guy and what a performance. I think just quickly on the uh, the balls point you mentioned there, I think it was um, obviously the Chiefs were the last team they lost to in the regular season all months ago. I think he saw what happened in that last game and he schemed perfectly. He, he adjusted everything in that game because I heard them say in terms of Tyreek Hill, there was no snaps whatsoever where he wasn't doubled up on. Whereas I think in the first game, they, they did play single coverage against him, which, you know, given his elite speed, you just don't do. And I think he just adjusted so beautifully for it. Cause they got wrecked that first time round. And in Winfield's case, I did feel kind I did feel kind of happy for him to see to put the peace sign up at Hill because obviously in the previous one, Hill did the same, then backflipped into an end zone. And I think that's a perfect adage of, you know, he who laughs last laughs loudest in that case. So it was it was nice to see Winfield get a little bit of a little little get little bit of payback there on him. I think that was well worth the fifteen yards. Oh god, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um we we can all laugh uh the likes of Brady when he goes in a hissy fit and doesn't perform well. And we can laugh at, you know, when things aren't going his way. And the one thing you, one of the things you do want to play against is a little bit of a, a a sulking Brady. But the last thing you want is the week after to play a a Brady that's coming back with a chip on his shoulder and with a vengeance. So you, you never get that in between with him. Um, and more often than not, you know, Brady's on a ven- coming back with a vengeance for three, four weeks in a row. He doesn't, he doesn't let that happen one, one off. Um, some of the points that I kind of wanted to make have kind of already been made, but I'm going to look and just kind of, you know, in response, to kind of what Steve said about, you know, when they're cutting off the uh, the cutting off Mahomes' supply up uh, downfield, but then you look at the elite elite level that those edge rushers were playing at. Yes, you're forcing Mahomes to run, but if Mahomes wants to run to the left, what did he see? An edge rusher coming straight for him. And then he wanted to run to the right edge rusher coming straight for him. It's not only making him run, but those edge rushers were forcing him to run backwards. I mean, he did get get a couple of those decent runs where we managed to get a first down, 
But he was running backwards. The reason he was pick he picked up nearly five hundred yards running behind the line of scrimmage is because he was doing three or four donuts before he could even get the ball out. And I think that's a level of and I'm looking at like look what what have the Lions tried to achieve over the last two, three years? What have they achieved and when did they achieve it? Well, we found out Patricia found out way too late that he needs to actually rush. He found out way too late to actually put decent edge rushes in place to rush a quarterback. I'm one of the last people who think... I, I'm not one of those who thinks that sacks on their own are a, are a legitimate a, a, and tell-all stat. But, you know, like, it was very rare that I don't think they even got Mahomes actually down that often. But they forced him back twenty yards. He's not trying to make a, a ten yard throw to get past to get a first down. He's making a nearly 20, 20, 25 yard throw to make it to a first down. It's unreal the positions they were putting him in. And just thinking about how late we learned to actually we, we had relative success against those sort of teams, but not enough. And it's the difference between having an all right edge rusher or kind of edge, uh, rushing a little bit between getting some elite level rushes and okay, that it, it's fair enough that the Chiefs did not have their starting tackles. Um, I do feel like, you know, in the position that we're in, if you have the likes of Taylor Decker protecting Stafford in those situations, it's going to look a lot different. But, you know, the... the the elite level of, of, of play so that yes and you look at when Mahomes or a quarterback's holding on to the ball for a long time and it gives receivers time to kind of change the route change move a little bit get away from cornerbacks get away from the safeties but he was having to hold on to it for that long or being forced to come back round again Mahomes that he was giving the, the cornerbacks and the safeties then time to react to the wide receivers reacting and they were never free. They could never get any good space. And you look at the way they utilized um, their zone coverage against the likes of Kelsey and against the likes of Hill and neutralized them. And I remember saying it on the day to you, Matt, look at how many yards that Kelsey's put up and it doesn't even feel like he's got 50. At what point did he, he, he was averaging a lot a yard per reception, but it did not feel like it at all whatsoever. It felt like you hadn't seen him apart from a couple of the drops and a couple of small catches. And I think that just says that the elite level coverage, the fact that just the way they use the difference in the zone and the man coverage was absolutely brilliant and you talk about Tom Brady going on to be a coach this is one funny thing that we were talking about on Sunday apparently he already is he's teaching centres how to snap a ball in New England apparently giving out lectures which I found you know it's quite funny but and then you start looking at not the game was was mostly won and lost on the Chiefs offence and the and the Bucks defence and how just how annihilated Mahomes and, and, and the team got and how many, but you know, actually, sorry, Mahomes managed to get some elite level plays out there that just didn't quite make it. But looking on the other side of the ball, the Chiefs were fucking themselves again with some of those play, some of those penalties. And I know that you're hearing a lot of this whole, well, the, the, the refs, the refs, the refs, the refs, the refs, you know, um, I want to see a lot of these fans of other teams 
coming out with that same energy next year when we play the Packers. I want to see that same energy um, when the refs are making stupid decisions. But a lot of them were 50-50s. Uh, there were a lot of them that felt a little soft, but they were correct calls. They may have felt soft, but I'm not being funny. In those situations, we see it in every sport. They do go the way of the likes of Tom Brady. They just do. They go the way of the Bucks. They go the way of uh, of those sort of players. It just happens. It's just the way. What you've got to do is you've just got to minimise the option for the referee to throw that flag. And it's difficult. One of the hardest things to do in the game, but you can do it. You can play good coverage without putting your hands all over someone. You can play good coverage without needing to to hold or, you know, that they allowed the game to be in the hands of the, uh, of the refs and those penalties a little bit too much. And finally, one of the things that I want to say again, is you look at, like I say, we look at Gronkowski, you're looking at Brady and you're looking at Fournette, but also who would have sat there and thought a few years ago that, in 2021, the winners of the Super Bowl would be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who have a worse record overall in history than the Lions, by the way, uh, the, one of the only teams to have it. Who would have thought that they would be a, a 40-year-old Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, Antonio Brown, and Leonard Fournette would be the winning touchdowns? Madness. Absolute madness. It is. It is. It's the world gone mad. Um, just on the referee point, if you concede that maybe even that there are small errors in how it was called, I don't think you can say that they uh, were egregious errors. They were exactly 50-50. I think you're, you're right. And maybe they went consistently one way. But if they're 50-50 and you've set a precedent of calling those sorts of things, you're going to keep calling them. And, you know, at the end of the day, the Chiefs didn't put the Tampa Bay defense in the same kind of difficult position to have non-calls or calls so um i mean you look at the fact that sorry slightly more into the game when some of those calls don't go your way you end up playing a little bit frustrated and that's the last thing you need to be doing in a in a super bowl is playing frustrated because you miss you don't quite hit it and you're not quite perfect but i'm gonna say that how many times though have we seen it include even in soccer right and i know there wasn't a full stadium but how many times have we seen it, or even in games recently where there's been no fans, the bigger team or the the the, the bigger players, so your Tom Brady's, your Gronkowski's, your players like that, but you look in soccer um, and you look at when teams like Manchester City or Liverpool or Man United or, or teams like that, when 50-50 challenges go in, how often, in a, especially when they're at home and the crowd is, is a little bit more in favour of... of of those teams, more often than not, those 50-50s go the way of the the bigger team or the better players. They just do. It's just kind of the way it unfortunately works. And any situation you are in with a 50-50 and you are, you are against Tom Brady, it's going the way of Tom Brady and his team. It mm. just, unfortunately, it is just the way it works. And the only way you can get around that is by minimising those options. Yeah. Yeah, I when just, you're losing by 23 points, I, I don't think you can really criticize the rest too much in that case for them. I, I, I think, yeah, regardless, you know, that front seven just collapsed the Chiefs all game. They, they could have had as many calls as they wanted, it was just not going to change that fact. So, I think they've got very little to go on there. Yeah, um, just a, a couple of points from me on, on 
what's generally happening there and, and, and a few stats thrown in there as well. So in terms of it being kind of a mix of rush and coverage, let's not let's ignore the sacks. There, there were only three, but there's 10 quarterback hits in the game. And if you have a look at previous games, um, say in the championship games, the Bills and the Chiefs, the Bills had three, the Chiefs had 10. Bucks, Packers, um, it was eight for the Bucks and four for Green Bay. So 10 is the most of, or joint most of any in the, in the final couple of games. In terms of passes defended, the Bucks defended nine passes. Uh, the Chiefs only defended one. In the Bills-Chiefs game, it was three and seven. In the Bucks-Packers game, it was four and four. So in both those measures, they are way out in front. Um, it was an absolute mix of both of those things. And the leader in that was Shaq Barrett. One sack, but four quarterback hits, which is outstanding. And in terms of passes defended, Winfield uh, Jr. and David had two apiece. Um, looking at PFF, um, Kansas City didn't have an offensive player above 77, which I don't think is a complete shock. The two best players on their team were Edwards Hilaire and Travis Kelsey. And for all we thought Kelsey underperformed, he still had a rating of 76 because he just wasn't a game-breaking player. He was merely just a very good player, which um, I think really Tampa needed in order to win this game. For Tampa, they only had three elite-level offensive players, but we, we all know that they want on the defensive side of the ball. They were um, the two tackles, Tristan Wirfs and Donovan Smith and Rob Gronkowski were the three players above 70. And on the defensive side of the ball, Kansas had one elite defensive player, which was Chris Jones, having an impact in the, uh, in the middle of the defensive line. But Tampa had, I would try and count how many, uh, all but four of their players ranked above 60 and four ranked above 75. Cam Gill only had three snaps, but he was at 91. But the players otherwise who really affected the game, Vita Vea, Shaq Barrett and Jamel Dean, all with a rating of 75 and above. And it just goes to show exactly where that game was won and lost. The Kansas City tackles were some of the lowest rated players in the game and the edge rushers for Tampa likewise were the, the highest rated and, and that's really where the, the game was won. But if you have a look at this game and for all of those people out there saying Mahomes isn't the guy, and I said this to the guys before coming on, Mahomes was so far away from being the problem in this game. If you have a look at what he did in the yards that Aaron mentioned that he ran behind, he was still making the throws and the Kansas receivers were dropping the ball two throws that Mahomes made on the run in desperation including that amazing throw that he made yet inches from the ground and still managed to get it off like in a sort of underarm sling sort of throw that I mean people try and compare Mahomes and Stafford and say well Stafford could have thrown that one I legitimately think the Stafford couldn't have thrown that one um, but that ball hit the receiver in the face and he had another one that hit a receiver in the face both on the goal line, maybe not quite in the end zone, but if they weren't in the end zone, they would have been a yard away from it. And if they catch those balls, the momentum completely shifts in the game. And he was consistently let down by Kelsey not being his elite self and receivers not being able to catch a ball from him. Mahomes played out of his mind to keep it 
vaguely competitive. When it went into the fourth quarter, I still felt like they had a shot because at any point that Kansas team can just decide to turn up. And for once, they just didn't. And what they really, really needed when the offensive line was going to absolute crap was a reliable run game. And that's what they don't have in a situation where their passing game falters, they can't win a game. It's just that their passing game is so good that that's going to be rare, but when it does, they can't do it. Also, I'm not being funny. How fun was it watching Tyreek Hill get pelted in the face with that football for that nearly 60-pointer he put up on me in fantasy? So if you're listening, Tyreek Hill, ha, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) I think just 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 to highlight some of the good players that you mentioned, the you know sort of the effect that having a good and a bad O line had on the game. I think you mentioned Tristan Wirfs there. I think if you're looking at last year's first round, you're probably looking at him as maybe the steal of the first round last year. I think they got him 13th overall. He's had an amazing year, and I think he put up the highest grade for a tackle in a Super Bowl ever. I think I saw the other day. So, you know. Bucks really landed a good one with him in the draft. It's nice to it's nice to have seen some of the rookies done well. Winfield as well. I think he was a first rounder. It was you know, some good some good talent on show there. Hopefully, uh, Holmes is going to land a few of those for us going forward. Yeah, I think um, you know, I think there's been so much talk about the the, the Bucks defense, but I think um, you know, Byron Le- Leftwich and the, the offense needs a shout out as well because what what they did, you know, was so clever in terms of. Um, getting at the kind of Kansas City defense, um, you know, they they just had a really balanced game. You know, I think Fournette uh, and Ronald Jones both ran for over five yards per carry. So you know, that's immediately putting pressure on the Chiefs, and it's really selling the play-action pass. And I think this is where Brady was at his, his best. If you look at his stats on play-action passes, he completed ten out of thirteen for an average of ten point three yards, and that and in that was three touchdowns, no picks, and a passer rating of one four nine. So by establishing the run game, um, I'm sounding like Matt Patricia, Patricia here. Um, by establishing the run, you know they they really confused the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, Tyron Matthews, a playmaker, and you know he was just not really in the game. Um, so I think that you know the the offense needs credit for the way that they mixed it up. You know Brady did what he needed to do. He didn't do anything too flashy. He just made his reads, made his throws, found his guys. Um, but I think from you know Byron Leftwich's point of view, I think Todd Bowles has got a lot of the credit, but he deserves a, a shout as well. Felt to me, again, at a couple of points in the game, like, especially when it felt like a, a pretty disappointing opening with the two free and outs and then the Chiefs get the ball and then the first points on the game is on the fourth drive and it's a field goal. And one thing I saw from the uh, from the books, especially earlier on in the game as they were really getting into it, was it felt like, I guess it was one of the, the, um, the Gronkowski touchdowns, it felt like they got up to about midfield really slow. And instead of... You know, they, they they just kind of they took the time with it. They passed efficiently. They just they got there in the they, they got there in the end, and they got to the midfield. And all of a sudden, bang! And Gronkowski took a few yards, or someone else came in with a good few yards, or Leonard Fournette made a good run. And it really felt to me like for the 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 way they just seemed to play. 
they didn't just didn't even just play um, the game. They played to the position they were on the field. They played to the drive that they were the drive that they were on. It seemed like a, just a very well thought out game as a uh, particularly towards the, during the second quarter. I, f- I really feel like the Bucks were, were were starting to just take the game realize where they need to be, what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing it. And they executed really, really well. Um, my, my last kind of comment on it is more, more or less a question, but how good was it to see Indomitian Sue get a ring? How good was it to see Indomitian Sue get a ring? I'm re- so happy for the guy. Um, and he's a free agent at the end. So Dan Campbell, and Brad Holmes, bring him home. Any further comments, boys, before we wrap up? I think just um, just on the the Buccaneers, when you look at the achievement, you know, and the fact that in the that defense in the last three games they've beaten Mahomes, they've beaten Rogers, and they've beaten Drew Brees. Um, you know, and that really is some statement, not just for this year, but for next year as well. Um, you know, they've got a young defense. They've got, you know, Devin White's only a young player. That secondary is, is, you know, still relatively young. So if they can hold the defense together, um, you know, I think Gronk's coming back next year. I, I can't imagine Fournette not playing again. Um, and if they can keep hold of, I think they've got Godwin and Evans possibly both in free agency, but if they can keep hold, hold of one of those, I, I can see them winning the NFC South again next season. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they've shown the template for going forward, especially, you know, those linebackers. I mean, good God, they were absolutely amazing, and that's something we don't have at the minute. So it's like they're showing the template of how to go forward. You really need a good linebacker core if you want to, especially if you want to be getting to, to Super Bowls and that. So, yeah, I'll just say hopefully we do similar now. We've got a long rebuild ahead, but I'd like to see a defense like theirs, as we were saying. It's like, it was um, good all over. Yeah, but I mean, look, look at the... Look at the NFC South anyway, uh, particularly the NFC South. They've got the Saints, uh, are, they're just not going to be what they were over the last few years. And if they've lost Drew Brees, they don't know what's going on at quarterback. And, uh, you know, not to sound to, even though uh, as Chris from DLP has said numerous times, and I agree with him, the cap is a social construct. But while they really struggle to get around the cap and they really struggle with how much money they've got and Drew Brees has taken... You know, he's restructured his contract to help them as much as he can. Uh, especially when you're looking at their div- uh, their division more than anything. The, the Saints, they're, they're not going to take it next year. The Falcons, no. Um, and the Panthers, absolutely not. Um, and you're looking at, God, I hope we're... Um, I'm not going to jinx it this year like I did last year, but God, I hope the Packers finally regress like they should be doing. <laughs> Um, and I don't see a team in the NFC next year who has what the Bucks can and, and will have. There are no powerhouses really in the NFC this year, um, or I can't think of any that are going to come up off the top of my head that are going to be powerhouses, and I think the Bucks are the only ones who can do it. And if Brady can stay at this level for a couple more years at least, and as Matt said, he can go till his 50 at the way he performs and the way he plays, and he looks like he'll just never stop. The the NFC right now, unless 
teams like unless the likes of of the Lions over the next couple of years really start to take it by the scruff of the neck and and really improve, the NFC could be theirs for the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, it really as, good. As Greg Rosenthaler said on the Around the NFL podcast, Brady looks better than he did, you know, fifteen years ago. And at the end of the day, if he hasn't experienced physical regression between the ages of 37 and, and 43, then I, I don't really see where the physical regression is going to come between the age of 43 and 50. He could just stay exactly where he is right now. Just keep working in the gym, keep your body healthy, fingers crossed you don't take a couple of bad hits, keep the O-line at an elite level, and there's no reason why he can't hit 50, as long as he's got the motivation to do so. And I mean, if you looked at what he looked like when he held that trophy aloft in his hands, he's still got that fire, and I don't understand where it comes from, but it's it's amazing to see. Um, so my prediction for next year's NFC Championship game, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to put 10 of your English pounds on it now, <laughs> Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers against Matt Stafford's LA Rams. You heard it here first. Wow. That's a big call. Yeah, I can see it though. I can definitely see it. Um, Steve, you write for NFL Scotland and you mentioned a, a recent article that you did, but anything more in the works? They're coming in the next couple of weeks. Um, I've just finished my Super Bowl review um, today. So that'll be published um, later to, tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, yeah, I did quite an extended piece on the Goff-Stafford trade. Um, and yeah, we, I think we're probably in the same situation as Wolves Lions. We're just kind of like thinking about how we're going to get through the off-season, what, what we're going to cover. Obviously, the draft's going to be one. Um, I'm sure there'll be some free agency drama, which I'm quite looking forward to. Um, but yeah, I think um, we are. It, it's been quite a season. And uh, yeah, I'm, I've, I'm tired of writing about the Green Bay Packers. So the last couple of weeks have been absolutely wonderful <laughs> right oh that's great cheers man um okay so our next episode is next tuesday 16th of february we're going to be talking about roster building so who looks like they're on their way out who are we keeping who's on the fence and what's the roster going to look like after we've dealt with all of that where are the gaps and that will look forward to our next few episodes which will be uh free agency and draft related So do tune in for those. Um, If you want to have any questions for us, you can hit us up on our socials and we'll deal with them on here too. Uh, Facebook is Detroit Lions Fans UK One Pride Worldwide. On Twitter, it's ROTL underscore UK. On Instagram, ROTL.UK. On the web, we will have a lot of new uh, blogs and and what have you on RawTheLionsUK.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us five stars on your podcast provider. That would be much appreciated for the work that we put in. It'd be great to get some, some feedback, whatever it is. It uh, just remains for me to thank my co-hosts, Aaron Fletcher, Anthony Fitzpatrick, and our special guests once again, Stephen Collins. Thanks for coming on, man. We will see you, uh, listeners, next week. Let's go, Lions. One pride. One pride. FTP. One pride. One pride.